Looks like it's working. Okay. Just get used to some contracts. You ready? Okay, I think we might, we might begin. Um, thank you guys all for coming to this last one of our informal seminar series for this term. And it's my pleasure to uh, welcome Yolanda Vasquez, who is a visiting fellow here at the moment, uh, visiting us, working on her research about immigration control back in the US. And Yolanda is going to put a paper on some of that research today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I really appreciate it, especially um, because this is a paper that I'm actually struggling with. And one of the reasons um, that I'm struggling with it is because it deals with um, psychology and sociology of human behavior, which is something that I am not an expert in. Um, and so I'm really um, looking forward to your feedback and your thoughts on this issue. Um, as Mary had said, I am um, in the U.S. I am an associate professor at the University of Cincinnati, and I started my career as a public defender. And for those of you um, who don't know what a public defender is, it's a criminal defense attorney who's assigned by the court for four clients who can't afford their own attorney in criminal cases. Um, because under our Sixth Amendment, we have they have a right to um, an attorney and one will be provided for them if they can't afford one. So I started out in Chicago um, as a public defender and because I was one of the few Spanish-speaking attorneys, um, I ended up in a courtroom that had predominantly um, Latino clients, mostly um, non-citizens, Spanish-speaking. And in 1997, I know I'm dating myself, um, <laughs> Two of the harshest immigration bills came down during the Clinton administration that increased the number of crimes that became deportable offenses, it increased enforcement, and it actually also decreased um, the number of remedies available in immigration court. So what really um, ended up happening as a function is that the criminal court system really was the place where any non-citizen could get any kind of relief. So the criminal defense attorney was, um, was really the person of last resort. And so if they were convicted of a crime, most likely they would be deported if it became a deportable offense. And because I um, started living it, because I was in a domestic violence courtroom and domestic violence became a deportable offense, it became um, my sort of Latin life to um, try to deal with this. So. Um, while I started out sort of talking about what our duties were as criminal defense attorneys, as I went into, um, switched into working as a civil um, litigator with um, migrant farm workers, and also then went into academia and started seeing um, that the number of people that were being affected by these laws were mostly Latinos in the U.S. And so I started writing about why that might be. And while I first started um, sort of just writing about that this was happening, I started looking at the impact that race may play in these race-neutral um, laws that were being created and were increasingly being created. And so as you know with the U.S. election, that um, migration and crime control and especially the relationship between Mexico and Central America really became a forefront in the political debate. And so I started to wonder, knowing all the research, and I'll go into it um, when I start, I started to wonder about why that was. 
not only um, do we see this vast increase of the years of this um, allegations of migrants causing crime, but it's juxtaposed against the reality um, that we'll talk about in a minute. And so when I look at and I see what's happening not only in the U.S. and then as a, as a result of being here across the globe of the way that we treat um, non-citizens and, mi and particular migrants, and those migrants are mostly people of color who were, came from either um, countries that were once colonies of the receiving state or had this... Um, unequal relationship between the place that they were going and the place, um, the nation that they were coming from, I started really wondering about what we can do, if anything, to stop um, this from happening. And especially, what, two weeks ago when Ian um, did his talk and started talking about um, conservatism and their talking points, it really... Um, hit a chord with me as far as this paper goes as well, although it really does depress me in many ways. And so um, what I'm going to start talking about first is the rise of this crime and migration connection within the U.S. And then I will talk about, to go into more of this human behavior or these questions as to why this is happening. Um, and then um, hopefully after I go into the why and the structure and what I'm seeing, especially in the political debates and, and the media, then open up um, for questions. And especially there's a lot going on that I'll talk about. And um, for those of you, some of the feedback I'd love to hear from is um, I can only, this, this is supposed to be an article, the article can be no longer than 25,000 words, and as I'm going to go through, it's probably going to be more, and so things that you think um, I should stress, and maybe things that you think I should delete, what you find interesting, um, and if you don't find it is interesting, should I bag the whole thing as well, but hopefully not. So anyway, um, I will start. So I found this quote from George Orwell, which um, came from 1945, which I thought was interesting because it talk, talks about freedom of the park, which was actually took place in Hyde Park on his um, questions about um, how the law plays into public opinion. And he finds that the point of the relative freedom for which we enjoy um, is actually depends on public opinion, which unfortunately, as I do this research, um, as a lawyer, we like to think that the law matters and the law will be just and kind and that public opinion or personal opinion does not take center stage. But unfortunately, as I've delved into this um, sociology and psychology of human behavior, that in fact is not the truth, that we find that words do matter and in fact that the words um, shape debate um, and shape public policy um, in a way that um, can be very detrimental to us all. So in the U.S., the amount of removals that you can see have really skyrocketed um, during, since 2002, and especially during the Obama administration. I know lots of people like to think that this is just a conservative thing, but it's really um, has been has started um, not only during probably Reagan in the 80s, but Clinton really got on board with it as well, Bush, and then Obama. In fact, um, as we know, um, Obama has deported more people in the, for his first six years in office than the 105 years total behind him. 
And so you can see the numbers. Just in 1983, for instance, 863 individuals were removed, and up until 2015, we have 460, over 462,000 people are removed each year, um, which is um, a lot, and actually over 400,000 of them are detained in immigration detention, which is twice as many that are housed in the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the United States. So this is a major movement um, that I don't think that there's been enough talked about, especially within the criminal context. And in 2015, 91% of those individuals were removed as what are labeled criminal aliens. And you might think, well, that's great, right? We should, um, the U.S. should deport those um, non-citizens who are the most dangerous, um, public safety concerns, national security concerns. And those, um, those, again, deemed criminal aliens. And so when we look at this crime and migration, we know that since the 1980s, um, crime and migration has taken place. Uh, Reagan talked about um, the, the, their coming, um, fast hordes of them, they're coming for, um, that will go against our safety and our public security. And even though he did what we called an amnesty bill, um, it was really a bill that really started to control migration in ways that no other administration did before. And so that just was ramped up through 1996, again, when Clinton was in administration, but we did have a Republican Congress, to the point where each year over 400,000 people are are removed in criminal court alone. This is not just an immigration. In criminal court alone, for instance, 54% of all federal prosecutions are for immigration violations. Nowhere, um, it has surpassed drug violations um, since I think 2007, if I believe. And there's a 49% increase in the detainee population as well. Um, and 2.5 million in detention over the last 11 years. So you can just imagine, this is um, a lot of people um, that I think is really, um, unfortunately, isn't really talked about. But yet this whole concept of criminal aliens, when we, um, the rhetoric says that they're the most dangerous um, and therefore must be removed, 47.7% have no convictions at all, is the reality. The reality is 9.6% are actually DUIs, um, driving under the influence of um, alcohol or drugs. 6% are actually traffic violations. And we have 2% are marijuana possession, and we know um, there's, a whole, um, there's a whole push, right, to deregulize uh, marijuana. 1.9% are actually illegal entries, although we see even with 1.9% of the total, there is across the southwest border that we share with Mexico, um, we call it um, Operation Streamline, where there is a, a zero tolerance. Every person who is caught crossing the border is now prosecuted in federal court. And then 1.9%, for instance, are cocaine possessions. So we're not really talking about the most dangerous uh, of people who are getting removed. And we are also, the amount of people who are being removed who are unauthorized immigrants actually hasn't changed much since 2007, yet we keep increasing the numbers. And again, I think one of the things that most people <coughs> don't realize is when we talk about unauthorized migration and the about 11, 000, um, 11 million that are present, we're not talking about those that just clandestinely 
um, cross the border in, under cloak of night. We're also talking about visa overstays. And so you go on a tourist visa, you get stamped in, you go through the border, and then you just don't leave. And so they estimate that approximately 45% of those that are unauthorized immigrants are actually visa overstays and are not those illegal aliens that we seem to um, see in social media all the time. And so um, we know that actually 70% of those that have resided in the United States have actually resided for over 10 years. And so again, when we think about um, who's coming in and why we're doing the things that we do, it, there's sort of a disconnect. 94% of unauthorized men are actually employed, um, and they actually have a higher rate of um, employment than their um, citizen, the citizen, U.S. citizens. And of course, they're overrepresented in low wage and low education jobs, um, especially farming, cleaning, construction, and food prep. And so when you look, um, and of course, as I said before, 90% of those are Latinos, mainly from Mexico, Central, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, and then 34% of those that are federally detained are Latinos. And the majority of those um, are below the poverty line. And so these are all the demographics that we're, um, we're detaining and removing, and it's costing us approximately $18 billion a year in the U.S. to uh, do immigration enforcement, which is more than the five federal enforcement agencies put together in our country, so more than FBI, um, the CIA, um, ATF, um, can't remember all five of them, but anyway, all five of those. And so when you look at the fact of that it's costing us so much to detain people, that we're actually not deporting the most, um, vault, the most um, dangerous and uh, terrorists, and we're looking at the costs, that one has to um, think about whether or not this is a good idea. And if we're not doing it um, in a way that's um, advantageous to the U.S., then why are we doing it? And so um, I have written about why, um, and I have written specifically about the relationship between um, the Mexico, Central America, and the U.S. And um, what we're seeing is if immigrants, we know, are less likely to engage in crime, in fact, not only are they less likely to engage in crime, but the growing research that's happening is the fact that um, when actually immigrants enter um, communities that have higher rates of crime, they actually lower the rates of crime. There's more stability. And we can see one of several of the reasons. They're more likely to be employed. right? They're more likely to actually go um, into communities and um, have, since they have two or three jobs, they're less likely to be able to um, have that kind of um, desire for criminality since they come from such poor countries, right? Since they're working, they'd be less likely to, make, to commit crime because of that. They have a, a family structure. Um, more families are actually also immigrating. Um, and so, what we do find out in research is actually it's the second generation, those that have assimilated into the U.S., are more likely to cause crime. But don't tell it to the birthers that um, want to get rid of um, birthright citizenship. But anyway, 
And again, when we look at the most, uh, most incarcerated for nonviolent offenses, um, and immigration actually since 2007 is down, and crime has actually been down. All the while, while well, immigration enforcement is going up. So again, we have to ask ourselves if that's if this is the if these things are happening, and therefore there is no correlation or a very slight correlation between immigration and crime, then why are we doing this? And especially what we're seeing: not only are we increasing the amount of policies that are happening, but migrants are actually increasing punitive punitiveness in migration and crime policies in general. We also know that if they are put within the criminal justice system, they are more likely to get harsher sentences than their U.S. citizen counterparts. We know that there's increasing hostility. I'm sure you've seen it on the social media of criminal aliens, increasing hate crimes against Mexicans, especially, uh, or those perceived to be Mexican or Latino, to the point of violence and often murder. There's an increasing number of deaths in the desert <coughs> that are happening. Um, as you can um, also see that there's uh, mandatory detention of women and children, which is something that we did not see before. And those um, women and children, there's actually reports coming out now that they're um, subject to inhumane conditions and um, high rates of uh, militarization of the, of the border, drones, um, and as you know, Trump and his, his wall. And so, um, again, we see all this, but it's not correlating. So why, in a society in which um, we strive to be one that has equality among all, why would we do this? And so I started looking at the psychology of human behavior, and one of the mechanisms is social stratification theory. And social stratification theory talks about you, we as human beings naturally allocate people into categories. It's actually, since we only use 20% of our brain, um, we actually are conditioned or hardwired to be able to work the most efficiently. And an efficient way of doing it is to categorize people into, into groups, right? And then the issue then becomes what do we do with that information? And so in social stratification theory, what we do is we categorize people and then we distribute, we put them into these groups and based on what group you're in determines what we're going to do in, in terms of allocating certain resources or how we're going to treat you. And so in um, social stratification theory, we talk about, they talk about exploitation or hoarding, those that we perceive to be unequal. Um, but I, I'm going to focus on the categori categorization itself. Boy, I can talk. So, and through these policies, what we also do is we produce these categories and then we um, create laws in order to then support the way that we want to treat people. And so, um, legal institutions help shape and reinforce Right, the way that we want or we categorize people or want to treat them in ways of allocation. And we think of, for instance, immigrants. We think of immigrants as a category, and if we think of resources, for instance, in the United States, um, immigrants cannot collect social welfare benefits, right? So we exclude them from certain resources, um, or we know with unauthorized migrants, exploitation, we don't pay them a fair wage. 
um, for their resources that they or their labor that they give us. And so when we look at this um, social stratification model, we're like, okay, well, we can organize people in so, into categories. That doesn't mean that we have to treat them unfairly. But unfortunately, that's not how our society works or we as humans work. And so we classify people conceptually, and then we, either through ascribed or achieved characteristics, and then we make boundaries based on these social distinctions, and then right, we take these shortcuts that we need to take, and we make judgments. And we find out that when we make these judgments, what we do is we go back to, especially if we're under stress or we have perceptions of threat, that we go back to these perceptions of who we, of these categories much more naturally and we're especially reliant on them. And then what I find even more interesting is that there's two parts of our brain. One is the emotional part and one is the rational part. And actually we have, we are, um, our brain functions in a way that there's actually more wires going from our emotional part to our logical part. So we as human beings actually function more on our emotional levels than we do on the rational levels. And so that's where a lot of our ability to act irrationally come from. And so when we think about this in the way that we're now seeing the world and we see so social media and we see rhetoric going, we start to understand why right, rhetoric political platforms go to these emotional levels um, and go to especially try to have conditions of threat or challenges from one group to another group. And so FISC actually has what's called the stereotype content model which is really interesting because what they do is that they say that people are put on the scale of warmth and competence. And so if someone is perceived or a group is perceived as being warm and competent, they are an esteemed in-group. They are, um, and it's much like we. We think of ourselves as warm, warm and competent, and so we find others like us to be warm and competent. Where if we find that someone's warm but incompetent, they're considered pitied out, the pitied outgroup. And so when we think of people who are elderly or disabled, those people we think but for the quote-unquote grace of God go I. And so they can be seen more like us, but the difference is they're older, they're disabled due to no fault of their own. And so we will pity them and they will be an outgroup, but they we won't be um, we won't be violent against them or have um, certain um, thoughts against them that are as bad as the the envied outgroup is very competent, but not warm. And so stereotypically, um, what we see within um, these categories within the U.S. is we see the envied outgroup as um, historically. Um, Jewish people were seen as very competent, but not very warm. Asians fall into the very competent, but not very warm. And so when we see um, people under stress, 
or people feeling that they're um, cornered or under um, threat that envied out groups are then lashed out against. The worst is the despised out group. Whoever fits into this category are, uh, are seen to be incompetent and cold. And that group is the group that um, are not only despised, but are seen as inhuman. And so dehumanization theory comes in here. And if you can be in that group, that human nature or human thought allows you to um, think of them as less than human, completely outside the community, and therefore anything that happens to them can be legitimated through the fact that they're thought to be dehumanized. And so this is the group that you can even kill and it will be rationalized by the esteemed in-group as okay based on their, um, their um, inhumanity or based on the fact that they're considered to be outside the group. And there were some interesting studies that were done. Um, one was that they took a group of people and they looked at, um, they had them look at pictures. And what they actually found was that although these three, the pity, the esteemed, and the envied groups, um, the, your frontal cortex actually lit up, that signals that you're actually looking at another human, nothing happened when they were given pictures of despised outgroup members. So the frontal cortex didn't light up, there was no recognition that this group was human, and therefore um, they're treated much the same as animals, or maybe even worse. And so this is, so what we want, or what we don't want, right, is, is to be in the despised outgroup. And so how do people get to be there? And despised outgroups are um, based on, and this is where wording comes from, and this is where um, boundary work and framing. And so framing, boundary work is, you have these work definitions and categories. So you get a person in a category, you create a category, and then you frame it to other people so that they start to think in terms of what you'd like them to think um, the category goes. So just because you may be an immigrant doesn't necessarily mean you would be in the despised out group, right? It depends on how that group is framed. And so then, this is where the words come in. Um, and so when we talk about immigration and crime, we know that um, crime, for instance, Goldwater in the 1960s, for anyone who wants to know, he was um, someone who really talked about this um, growth in the crime rate and racialized it to blacks. And so when we talk about this um, growing menace, we see, again, the personal safety, the life, the limb, the property, the threat to the steep in-group and then we license it to the mob and of the jungle. And so we can see the jungle, the animalistic nature coming in, and we know that it was, um, it was meant to target blacks in the US. Um, and so when we look at crime, even Obama in 2014, when he talked about his immigration, um, his immigration reform, he talked about it 
in terms of criminals, that he was going to focus on criminals. He was so proud of the fact that 80% of, of deportations of criminals, and that's what we're going to focus on, felons, <coughs> not families, criminals, not children, gang members, not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. And so when we talk about <coughs> this issue of criminality um, that's seeping through in immigration, we're in, um, it will understand that criminality goes to the dehumanization work as well, which again is growing and very um, growing, but not as much as it should be. And so, when again, when we talk about this demonizing of others or dehumanization, it goes to the point of um, lax identity with the community. It legitimizes wrongs committed against them and expelled from the human community circle. And so it's really this lack of <coughs> this moral sensibility that they have with us as humans and our ability then to rationalize their treatment away. And again, um, words matter. As I was saying, there's a growing amount of literature as to criminality and its dehumanization um, as far as the words go. There's not a lot, but um, it does correlate to what I've been discussing. That um, they've done some studies and they used words um, to um, correlate to um, defendants. And they found that if defendants were um, given, or if there were descriptions of defendants that were de dehumanizing, went more towards being an animal or a beast, um, that they then were able to rationalize harsher treatments, more punitive sentencing, that the more um, disengaged that you were with that person, that they were more willing to be able to, for instance, even the death penalty, give the death penalty, treat them inhumanely. Um, and one of the interesting things is this blatant dehumanization between versus subtle dehumanization. We see all across um, in social media that more and more people are getting to be outrageous. That we look at the, what they say and we think, oh, nobody would take them seriously. But what we're finding in research is actually the more blatant that a person is um, talking about people in dehumanizing nature actually allows people and people follow um, this, that they actually treat people more in a more dehumanizing way, which completely goes against logic. But again, what we've learned is logic doesn't play a strong part in here. And so again, when we talk about also criminality, there also is a strong correlation between the dehumanization of blacks, which they had already experienced, especially slavery as we know in the US, um, and their relationship to the label of being a criminal. Now what's also interesting is this ascent of man um, study that was done. And it's a study where they actually look at the picture of the scent of man. And so if anyone's seen it, you know, it starts out as an ape and then goes to um, a human standing person. And with that, they um, did a study predominantly on Arabs and Muslims, blacks and Mexicans, Mexican immigrants, Mexican Americans. And they found that blatantly dehumanizing language um, is second, um, the first is Muslims and Arabs are the most dehumanized, we're not surprised. And second is our Mexican immigrants um, seem significantly less evolved actually in the last rung. But what we find, what I found interesting is 
where African Americans and Mexican Americans go. And they said that um, they are subjected to both explicit and implicit dehumanization. Or, um, and what that means is that um, even though people know that they're not supposed to have prejudices or dehumanization um, thoughts towards maybe uh, African Americans and Mexican Americans, um, because it's not seen as, as legitimate as, for instance, immigrants, that it still exists. And it exists in a way um, that is still dehumanizing, and it's still actually, even though they're Mexican Americans and black Americans, that there's still a relationship between them and a reduced support of immigration. There is more, um, they're less angry towards injustices, there are less sympathetic responses to negative media portrayals and greater aversion racism. So that's not just immigrants, but it's Mexican Americans and African Americans as well. So now that I've depressed everybody, let's keep going. And so um, when we talk about the way now that media is um, portraying immigrants, we have illegals are immigrants, they're criminals, right? So this goes back to the dehumanization that you can have if you can um, get people to go underneath the criminal ability, I mean the um, definition. Again, keep America American. Um, do your patriotic duty report e illegal immigrants, which also goes back to the issue of threat. And of course, the threat of 38% of all murder convictions in five states are carried out by illegal immigrants. They're here to commit the murders. Americans won't. <laughs> and so, and we would think, right, that some of this is, is ridiculous, that we're not going to, that we wouldn't believe this, that this is not really um, something that would cause our psyche to act a certain way, but we realize that that actually does that this is one of the strongest predictors of how we're going to treat people. And what we're gonna, how we're going to treat them definitely goes into the public policies um, that we have. And so Donald Trump, of course, you know, we know that he was blatant. He correlated Mexico, Mexicans to um, drug dealers, <laughs> to being criminals and being rapists. And Nigel Farage, I had to put in there, he does talk about Romanian and then crime, right? So Romanian are criminals um, and Mexicans are rapists. And, you know, in 2013, of course, we had Hungary as well with the Roma. I mean, he's also very explicit. They behave like animals. They shouldn't be allowed to exist in no way. This needs to be solved immediately and regardless of the method. <coughs> and so... Um, and this goes back to the Mexican history in the United States. Mexicans have stereotypically been deemed to be mongrels, animals, um, heartless creatures, creatures Nigel Farage. Anyone remember that? Obama just a couple weeks ago, right? Um, and so again, these are words of, of dehumanization. And so again, when I, I talk about the history of Latinos, dehumanization, um, they've always, they've been subject to lynchings. Mexican repatriation and Operation Wetback. Um, Wetback is a derogatory term you use for Mexicans because they swim the Rio Grande and then they come and their backs are wet. So yeah, they were explicit about that. Um, and of course, Trump has decided that he is going, he wants to um, have another Operation Wetback. 
um, because that would get rid of the 11 million that are here um, or in the United States. And um, this is what we see now in the social media. Um, and so as we see how to catch an illegal immigrant, and we see that underneath this is an animal trap, very southern rustic um, possum trap with the little, the possum would go under and eat it, and then the, you'd, you'd have a little string and you'd pull the stick, and then the, the box would go underneath. And of course, this is racialized because it's not just any kind of food, it's a taco. Right? And so stereotypically, Mexicans eat tacos. And so again, when we talk about dehumanization network, this is Wisconsin where I'm from. And so you could buy this resident sticker and put it on your car, and it's a hunting permit, and it's a no-bag limit, and tagging not required. And even in the US, there's a bag limit for deer, but not for illegal immigrants. And so we see this dehumanization coming that um, only will reinforce our ability to, and again, these are some of the consequences, to treat a group of human beings in this way. And so if we know that, if we know that the rhetoric of threat and the rhetoric of safety um, and dehumanization words matter, the question then becomes, what is the remedy? And these are just some of the remedies that I have because I don't know. Um, I don't know how to um, make it better. Or maybe this paper is just supposed to talk about this reality that we seem to miss, especially as lawyers or legal academics um, who think that it's the law that matters. And really what we know is public opinion really matters more. So thank you.
in this rational, rational way today, but it's just kind of manifesting in these kind of more insidious terms. It's not that we've moved beyond that. Those legacies, those rational legacies of race are still there. Um, so that's one comment, which again, like I've said, changed the, how you're approaching the paper. But the other... Um, you mean rational to them, but not rational to us? Or... Um, And so one of the things, and I think what you're saying is, is this is just another way to get the job done that race could do before. Is that? Race and so, was doing before. Right, exactly. And I, right, and I completely agree with you. I think um, I probably didn't say it here enough, is, is the fact that one of the issues that we have is we're not discriminating discriminating against people because they're Mexican, we're discriminating against them because they're immigrants, and immigration status is something that we have a right to do um, to protect our borders and the boundary work that, that they do. And so, yes, I definitely, um, in one of the pieces I've done before, I talk about that criminal aliens is just a new way uh, in this post-racial society to get the job done that... Um, racial discrimination can't do anymore since the 1960s in the U.S. when race was, was um, deemed to be illegal. And so that is definitely something, and, it, and that's what makes it harder. It's because it is much more layered and complex, um, but that's why it, it's successful. Yeah. But I need to probably expand on that a bit more. Um, so no, I, com I completely agree. And then, yes, I'll, um, if you don't Give give it to me. I'll ask Ingrid, and I just emailed her, but I don't think she knows I'm working on this. So, um, and as far as Martha Newsbaum, when you're talking about that, she's talking about emotions can be rational. I think, and I think that's true. And I and I think about it in terms of, for instance, in in during Kennedy's speeches, talking about fear, and the only thing that we have is fear itself, and and um, and reshaping our emotions to be better yeah. than what we are now. And I think the problem is that we're reshaping these emotions to be not, to be a certain way which is not better than who we are. Um, and we talked about this um, just this weekend of, you know, on a political movement in the U.S. where you have almost two million voters who voted for someone, more voters who voted for someone else who lost, and ready to make a change, but there's no one. Who are the leaders to be able to change the rhetoric that's not so dehumanizing to a group of individuals? So. Okay. Yeah, that, that's one. Yeah, I think it's really interesting way to think about it in terms of 
just a natural human entity forming groups and boundaries between groups. But what that then leads on to, I'm not sure this is a question by the way, but it might be. Um, what that leads on to is the understanding that there are different groups and different boundaries that become more or less salient at one particular point in time to different groups of people. So the question in terms of your last slide there is, is why are these boundaries salient to these people at this point in time? Um, and certainly in the UK, we find that concerns about immigration are inversely proportional to the number of immigrants living in that area. Mm-hmm. If you live in an area where there are lots of immigrants, you're less concerned about these issues mm-hmm. than, you're, than if you live in an area with, with fewer immigrants. So there's something about all port and group contact there that's something that's one possible solution. And the other kind of question that immediately raises is why are these grant boundaries and these groups salient to these individuals at this point in time where they are salient? And then you're into a kind of a, quite a Marxist interpretation, which is this, is this is a kind of false consciousness. This is people misdirecting anxiety they have about their own social conditions and, and othering that onto another group of people. And if, if you, so thinking about groups as something that shift and change, it can become more or less safe. give you two answers to your problem at the end there. If you live in a neighborhood where there are lots of immigrants, you're less concerned about immigration because you know you're not monsters. If you live in an area where there are a few immigrants, and you're having a really shitty time, you've just lost your job, and you're looking for people to blame, this is being handed to you on a plate to say people to blame in your situation. You often buy the people who are responsible for putting you in that situation in the first place. And that's very clearly what's happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, so the answer to your question there is perhaps we need to think about ways of reframing people's group capacities, of combating these kind of right-wing memes and think about different kinds of memes that activate different identities and make those identities more salient. It is really interesting because one of the things that also um, limits the ability to stratify another group is living within close proximity to them or living within the same community. And so it's talked about segregation for in the U.S. is actually greater than it was prior to the 1960s. And they said that that is one of the biggest things to be able to continue stratification because if you are forced to live together, you're, um, first of all, you can't pick and choose areas and boundaries in the same way that you can. And you also then, like you said, you are able to meet the other person and know that they're not as different as you are. But unfortunately, um, since the 1960s, we've had more segregation and more delineation, so that didn't work well. Um, Yeah, thanks Yolanda, great talk. Um, um, I don't disagree with what what you're saying, um, and this is just something that I was thinking about, Um, but what about the way in which words don't So um, I was really struck with the Trump campaign and all the dissenting voices, there seemed to be so much said about how wrong he was and how racist he was and why is that not heard? When the words come to be visible and invisible um, and oscillate between that, um, I mean, mean, what does that say about words themselves and the connections that people make with racist thoughts and behaviour and sentiments towards certain groups? There is some work that, um, I can't remember the two of them, on, um, I think they're out of Harvard, that talk about that if people think a certain way, even if you give them facts that contradict, um, no matter how true those facts are, they will rationalize those facts away. So that's one of the problems. 
Um, I think the other um, the other problem, and and I don't know as much about this, is they talk about, for instance, when we talk, we frame things in human rights, that people don't respond to those um, thoughts as much as they respond to something that is connected to them more. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, no, go. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's right. So that's another <laughs> that's another issue. Um, I can't remember who's done that research. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. So they talk about that as well. So those are the two those are the two issues that are a problem. Is you can't you can't tell people something differently um, if they believe it strongly enough, no matter how truthful it is, and that uh, framing things in human rights, and I can't remember why there's a disconnect. I think there's a rationality um, about it that's disconnected from sort of the very much more uh, primal um, connection to what do what's it in it for me kind of thing. Um, so I think that, but do you think I need to go into that? Um, I, I just think it's interesting to, if you're thinking about words that mm -hmm. Just like I didn't even go to the word illegal, right? The word illegal immigrant and the fight and how it actually dates back to um, Jews going into Palestine and Britain, Britain calling the illegal authorization. So it comes from <coughs> that um, when they were fleeing the Holocaust. It's also very depressing. Um, yeah, thank, thank you for that talk. Um, it's just a couple of... So, Questions that'd be interesting just to hear, hear your thoughts on more, and then and then one idea that's just sprung to sprung to mind. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much rests on it, but I just wonder what your I was trying to work out what, what your sort of narrative of history is in a way, because uh, I suppose, or, or what the problematic is in a way, because there would be maybe one way of, of taking what you're saying and saying, well, there was this sort of period, there was, there was some period of, of improvement and, and progressivism and so on, and that's sort of fallen back, and so problematic is, well, why are things where we are now, or there's an alternative narrative, which equally, you, you know, you've sort of spoken to of, this is just continuous, and this is really, you know, this, this does, as you said, direct, relate directly back to, you know, as far back as, as sort of modern America goes, that this is just the same people find, you know, as we sort of said, people find different ways to do the same kind of racist things, basically. Um, so I don't know how much rests on that, but I was just thinking whether that maybe affects the way the sort of story story goes or whatever or what exactly mm -hmm. what exactly the phenomenon is that you know is, is it something that's happening right now or is it is it something that's more has more longevity you, you've answered this slightly but might be more to say in terms of if you're saying about the, the, the stats around Obama's period in office I mean so one question there seems to be you know is this actually due to presidential action is, is this my like knowledge so is this due to presidential action because there's lots of other actors in the US politics and lots of different levels and if it is due to Obama which you said it is then what you said a little bit about this but, but what the sort of logic and argument developed was for this because there seemed to be I mean you said he has this sort of pride in what we're targeting the right people but that's sort of on the face of it to me as someone who doesn't know enough about this I should explain why this sudden explosion in, in trying to be put so many 
so many people. And the and the third thought, or the, or the, the third point, the final thought is just um, it's just made me think of the work that um, transforming justice in in the UK have done recently with um, I think it's called the Frameworks Institute, um, trying to develop a kind of um, their argument is you you try and frame in this case criminal justice in a certain way that sort of gets around those challenges you were mentioning in terms of say human rights that you try and that, so they say that you sort of test out different metaphors and conceptions and things, mm-hmm. and they come to this argument that, that you use this notion of sort of currents, that prisons are kind of current that sweeps, you know, people get kind of sucked into, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of dangerous currents. Um, and the Howard League appear to be um, using this. You know, they've started a campaign that basically takes that metaphor directly mm-hmm. and is plugging it into a campaign that they're just starting now. So it would be an interesting kind of case study of, of trying to use particular metaphors and language as a way to try and sort of, ter- that's part of what you're saying, yeah, mm-hmm. try and sort of turn, sort of go with people to take mm-hmm. them into different ways of seeing things rather than directly to sort of, you know, tell a white supremacist that they're, that they're racist or they should be, you know, nicer to right. Mexicans. <laughs> like, you know, that's not going to work, but maybe right. finding ways that actually flows with, with logics that they, mm-hmm. that they might actually find more persuasive. For instance, one of the things with criminal justice reform in the U.S. is that it's too expensive. And so they talk about fiscal responsibility yeah. instead of... Um, but so, so they, I mean, just to note, so, so, the frame, so one of the arguments with that framework institute work is that they challenge that and they say that mm-hmm. doesn't... Right. I, I'm not right. sure I, I fully buy that kind of... Just, Nor do I, but... About <laughs> the research behind what they're saying, but they right. say fiscal arguments just don't work. Right. Although I think... Initial appeal and then beyond that. Right. Although I think from the Republican side, they were able to have a fiscal. And I think that's what, and to be quite honest, I think that's where the Democrats fail um, in terms of when we look at the tough on crime movement that we know, for instance, Clinton actually, instead of fighting it, he got on the bandwagon. And in fact, you know, during his, president, um, during his presidential campaign, went to witness a um, <coughs> the um, capital punishment of a, of a man who had a, had, was so severely mentally um, developmentally disabled that he saved his pie for later um, when he came back. I mean, he didn't really even understand what was happening. And so I think with Obama, unfortunately, I think that he thought if he closed the borders or was tough on immigration that he would be able to get um, some kind of comprehensive immigration reform. I also, to be quite honest, I should be taping this. I don't think Obama is is that that far left. Um, so I think he's very center. So I think um, I do think he had his own issues. To be quite honest, being a black president, and I think that had its issues. And I think um, there's lots of things that happened, and Congress didn't help. But I don't. But you can tell he didn't change the rhetoric. And I think it was because he didn't want to appear um, light on immigration. Um, but I do think that um, it is, I know Ami and Wynette talks about racial formation and how things change over time to get the same stuff done. And to be quite honest, I do think that this particular rhetoric works um, in a time of post-racial Although, are we still going to say that now? I don't know. I mean, we said that during Obama. I don't know if 
we can say it during Trump, although if you look at the comments, people are still saying that it has nothing to do with race, gender um, issues. But um, I do probably think it should be framed in this is just a, a constant. Although it does ebb and flow, but Latinos across the board have received um, more pushback with immigration than probably any other um, group. So.
you know, those were the ones that you could really sell, you know, because they didn't decide to come here. They just came here and they were raised as Americans and they were in college and serving in the, wanted to serve in the military and that didn't work either. And so one of the things will be interesting is um, college students actually have a lot of power, right? They make and shake things. And so they're really worried because Trump said that, that he's going to get rid of DACA. And there's over 700,000 um, children right now that have DACA. And so if he gets rid of their status, um, I think he's really going to um, rile things up, which would be good in some respects, but we'll see what he does. He may not want to touch it. He may go back on it, but, um, but yes. If, and again, it's, it's the rhetoric. Why can Republicans make change um, but Democrats can't on that rational family, children, right. family values. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>